I was thinking at several points this week about how we have all been fooled by the way something looks on the outside. Maybe it's a person, a book, a building, maybe it's an article of clothing, a meal. We've been fooled by the way something looks on the outside only to find out what's on the inside is totally different. So I have a memory I've told the story before, and one of these days I'm going to have to ask my mom and dad if they recall this, but I have a memory that as a little kid, I saw a can of Crisco in our kitchen, and looking inside, it looked like frosting. And I had seen tubs of frosting in our house. Now, you know, my mom can make frosting from scratch too, but every now and then, you know, the tubs were there. It's okay. And so there's this tub of Crisco. I don't know what that was. It looked like frosting. I think the picture on the tub is a pie. Let's dessert. So logically, it made sense to take a spoon, put it in the Crisco, and put it into my pie hole, as it were, only to find out what that stuff looked like was not what I thought it was. Um, If you've never tried that, don't do it. Crisco does not taste like frosting. Um, Not too long ago, we bought a brownie from a eating establishment that will go unnamed. And uh, this, this eating establishment has these nice rectangle fat brownies and they like to decorate like a triangle, you know, half of it with powdered sugar. I mean, why not? To have some powdered sugar on top of already brownie, already wonderful brownie would be great, only to bite into it and the bakers or whomever, they put flour on top of the brownie instead of powdered sugar. So I actually did go back and talk to this eating establishment about that, and uh, the manager just kind of shook his head. Um, Anyway, so yes, right, it'd be unusual to expect something sweet only to get flour. One of my funniest memories, and you can talk to my kids about the details of this one, but one time I decided, uh, as any good dad would do, to offer them a spoonful of chocolate, but it was unsweetened baking cocoa, and I just couldn't wait to see their faces react to putting that powder in their mouth. And and, uh, anyway, you can talk to them about that memory. We've all had experiences like that. Maybe it's a beverage that you thought was one thing, and then you only find out what what it looked like on the outside. What you thought it was was not what, in fact, was on the inside. It can be true of food, as I said, persons, books, clothing, so many different things. And the reality is, friends, it can be true of a church. It can be true of a church. It can be true of God's people. It's possible for churches to look one way on the outside and to be very much uh, not what it appears on the inside. It can be true of a church corporately. It can be true of individual Christians. We can look like one thing and inside be something else. And we're going to see in a moment that this is the story of one of the churches in this series we are in. We are in the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches. I found a different map. Uh, This one's a little easier to read. Um, You can see there the Mediterranean Sea, and you see some different cities, Jerusalem on the bottom right in red. Um, You see the island of Patmos right there kind of in the water, and that's where John the apostle was 
where he received this revelation, this vision of Jesus from Jesus. And then you see the red dots representing those seven cities, those seven churches. And as I've said each week, um, those are not the only churches, the only cities in Asia Minor, what is modern day Greece, but those were the seven that Jesus wrote to. Specific letters to seven specific churches, but they serve for us as representative churches. There are things Jesus said to them that speak to all of God's people, all of God's churches for all times. Every one of these letters ends or at the near end says, let the one who hears hear what the spirit says to the churches. So even if he's writing as he's going to write today to Sardis, that's the fifth one in the list, chapter three of Revelation, it's to this church, but it's for the churches to hear and to learn from. We've noted each week that for the most part, all of the letters from Jesus to all seven churches follow a pretty distinct pattern. There's an address. Jesus is gonna say, write to the angel of the church. And that word angel we've talked about is the word um, messenger in, you know, in its translation. So it could be an angelic being. Maybe there is an angel of each church and God has a message. Uh, it could just be that the messenger is the, the pastor or the pastors, the, the people that teach. Because um, we pastors, we, we proclaim a message. And, and so maybe it's to the leaders, the pastors, but, but there's an address for a letter to be written from Jesus to a church. Um, Then there's a statement from Jesus about himself that typically is from something that John had seen in the first chapter of Revelation. So John, when he starts to write what he saw, he gets this vision of Jesus. Some of it is things he saw. Some of it are things Jesus said. And Jesus, at each letter, pulls some phrase that seems to have a direct application to that church. So that's in each of these. Uh, Then, for the most part, there's a a word of praise. There's a a word of commendation. Um, For five of the seven, today with Sardis, we come the first time where there is not a direct word of praise. Um, There's two that don't have that uh, word of praise. Sardis and then Laodicea, which will be in two weeks Uh, Then there's uh, a statement of rebuke or concern, and similar. There's only five that get that word of rebuke. Smyrna, who we've looked at already, and then Philadelphia, who we'll see next week. And again, this is like ancient Philadelphia, not the Eagles Philadelphia on the East Coast. They would be rebuked greatly. Smyrna and Philadelphia, they they only get a word of praise from Jesus. Interesting. Then there's an exhortation from Jesus, some word to do something. Maybe it's to hold on, don't be afraid, repent. We we see the word repent quite a bit. We'll we'll see it today. And then there's a statement of what Jesus is going to do if the church fails to act. Um, Sometimes it's an encouragement. It's a word for them to press on. Sometimes, though, it is a word of of judgment. And and we've noted that over the last couple weeks, and that's hard for us to hear. We we don't like that as a people, words of judgment. We we love John 3.16, and it's true. I've been thinking about it all week. Like, how, how amazing that verse is. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. 
that's an amazing verse and it's wonderful. But Jesus also had some hard things to say, especially to his people who weren't living right. We, again, we, in our theme kind of this morning, our good, good father, fathers that are good do discipline their sons and daughters. Mothers that are good do discipline. Parents need to discipline children. We know that. And God sometimes disciplines. Sometimes there's a word of judgment and it's meant for us to hear and respond and repent. And, and, and yet we don't like it, but we need to hear. We need to hear John 3.16. We need to hear words of warning. And that's part of what we have in these letters. And then as I already mentioned, there's the invitation in all seven to hear. Let the one who hears what is being said hear and respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. So... This, this wasn't written to us. Today, we're going to hear a word written to Sardis, but it was written for us, and we need to hear. And then they all have, either at the end or near the end, a promise to the victor. This is where we get the word Nike, the, the swish, right? The conqueror, the overcomer. And so we'll see that again as well. And so we come to Sardis. Now, as I've said it's a church that looked like one thing on the outside, but in fact, it was something quite different on the inside. Alive, but dead. So if you have a Bible, I hope you would follow as I read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So the seven letters are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We have had four letters in chapter 2, and now the final three letters are in Chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, 1 to 6. I'm always indebted as a pastor to uh, commentaries and things I read, and in particular, uh, one uh, resource this week from a, a current pastor named Kevin DeYoung. Uh, a lot of some insights from him will be peppered throughout this message, and I want to give credit where credit is due. So with that, please follow as I read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you received and heard. Keep it, repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Sardis to the angel of the church in Sardis. This church in Sardis 
one scholar notes, comes under the most severe denunciation from Jesus of all seven. And, and that's a little striking. Laodicea, as you'll see in here in two weeks, uh, a friend of Soma's, Adam Wilson, will be here on that Sunday to preach that message. Um, and I'll be here too and will enjoy hearing uh, him deliver. But Laodicea is going to have a harsh word, but, but this church has a severe denunciation. Um, interestingly, there's no mention about the heresy of Balaam or Jezebel. We've had a lot of laughter in our home all week about cats that run through our yard calling them Jezebel. If you were here last week, you know what that means. Um, there's nothing about that. They're not committing idolatry, apparently. They're not committing gross, immoral, pagan worship and sexual immorality like the last two churches. But, but it is a severe word. It had the appearance of life. Jesus uses the word reputation, or that's the word, that, how it's translated, but it's the word name. You, you have a name, but you're dead. You got a reputation, but you're dead. And so he's writing to this, this church. Now, Sardis, uh, there's been lots of evacuation, uh, ex- excuse me, excavations uh, in, in this region, as with all of these. And uh, they've found in kind of the lower region of the city, uh, a Roman theater and stadium that was built at one point, an, an exceptionally large one at that. Um, there was a large temple dedicated to Artemis, you may Remember that name? Artemis was a Greek goddess that was very, very prominent in the city of Ephesus. And apparently here in Sardis, which if we look again at our map, Sardis is uh, just kind of directly northeast-ish from Ephesus, so not too far away. And so again, archaeologists have found ruins to uh, a temple dedicated to Artemis. Uh, it appears that this temple was going to have 78 iconic columns, 78, think about that. Two of them still stand, and they were to be 58 feet in height. Enormous. It was built on the 6th century BC, so think about that, 6th century before Christ. Now we're almost 100 years later, so long time span. This temple to Artemis was built on the foundations of an ancient temple constructed by Croesus, but that was destroyed in about 500 BC, 499. It was then reconstructed, but never completely finished in the time of Alexander the Great. And at that point, it was dedicated to another local goddess, usually referred to as, uh, I'm going to pronounce it Sybil, C-Y-B-E-L-E, who was identified with Artemis. Again, this patron deity was believed, this is important, to Sardis, to possess special power in restoring life to the dead. So this goddess connected to Artemis was believed to have power to restore life to those that were dead. But as we were going to see, and as Jesus says right at the front, there's only one, there's only one who has the power of restoring life. There's only one that can bring the dead to life. Jesus is often referred to as the great physician, and this great physician has some words to say to Sardis. He says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So here's the words he's pulling from chapter one. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, unusual uh, 
in two different ways, these, these phrases, the seven spirits of God. Let's talk about that first. John is talking about the Holy Spirit. There is only one Holy Spirit, and he's one person, part of the triune God, one God, three persons, right? And yet John here says the seven spirits of God. Well, um, there is only one Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. And in every letter here in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, singular, says to the churches. So there, there is only one Holy Spirit. But this phrase, it comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, at the beginning of the Revelation. Revelation 1, 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. A little bit later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, it's going to come up again. Uh, The seven torches of fire, um, the seven spirits, the seven eyes. One of the difficult things with uh, Revelation, I was was reading this week uh, about John Calvin, the reformer, and uh, he, he did not... Uh, write a commentary on Revelation. And when someone in his time asked, why haven't you? He said, it's just too difficult. <laughs> so if, if, if John Calvin would say that, that tells you something. Now, we're also encouraged to study it, uh, and, and we ought to, absolutely. But, but the point is, I think John Calvin's point was, there's so much apocalyptic stuff happening. This, this book, let's remember the genre for a minute, right? Th- this is apocalyptic literature, it's different than, than the Gospels as literature. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these, these accounts of what we think of as history and biography. This has some of that, but there's all kinds of weird things that John is seeing and descriptions and, you know, tongues like swords. And, and I mean, it's, right, it's, it's apocalyptic in, in its nature. Um, and so there is, there is a difficulty in interpreting and understanding things. All of that simply to say, and we'll kind of leave it at this, this phrase, the seven spirits, is John speaking of the one Holy Spirit, but that number represents perfection. It represents perfection. The sevenfold spirit. There's similar imagery in Zechariah chapter four in the Old Testament, and even Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verses two and three, talk about the Holy Spirit as the spirit of the Lord, who is the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, and of knowledge. So there's this way that uh, the Holy Spirit is is multifaceted, even though he's one, and and that's what John is saying, the Holy Spirit, who's perfect. And it's Jesus saying, I hold, I hold the seven spirits of God. I have the Holy Spirit and the seven stars. Seven stars, those are the, the messengers, remember that. In this section, the seven messengers are these angels or messengers. The torches are the churches. And Jesus, I think, I believe, is saying, listen, Sardis, you have this uh, patron goddess um, who supposedly has the power to restore life. No, I'm going to write to you, and I hold the Holy Spirit who gives life, and I hold you, and I'm the great physician. I'm the giver and sustainer of life. I'm sovereign, not this goddess, but I am. And I'm, I'm writing to you, and I, I know you, and I got you. And I think this is why, again, Jesus pulls these phrases from his 
description of himself and what John saw in chapter one to speak to this church. Again, one writer says, how does this image relate to Sardis's condition as dead? Jesus seems to have emphasized that he holds in his hands the power of life for the churches through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus holds the Spirit, holds the messengers. He alone can give life. He alone is a great physician. And now he's going to identify in this church a problem, a prescription, and a promise. And let's use those three Ps to move through the, the text so first we come to the problem. And this is where we hear Jesus' words of rebuke. Again, there's no commendation. There's a slight one. We'll get there. But we don't have, like we've heard so far, a word of praise. Right away, he's got this word of rebuke. And it's, it's the problem. Back to verse 1, the second part. I know your works or deeds. But then he doesn't name any. In fact, he says, you have a reputation. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. I know your works or your deeds. I know your name. I know this reputation, you know, in the region. It's a reputation of life, but in fact, you're dead. <laughs> I was chuckling this morning, um, thinking about, you know, who in my life have I known that's had a reputation for something and then it turned out to be, to be false? Uh, and this, this story came to me. So as I was learning to play the guitar, uh, there was this one song uh, called Dreams uh, by Van Halen that is basically a, a keyboard song and very big in, in the sound. And uh, so I, I didn't know how to play any of it, but I was talking to this kid. This is a real story. His name was Reza, this kid I went to school with in uh, Roner Park. And he said, yeah, Paul, I know how to play Dreams. You, you do? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And, and we had this organ in our house at the time, you know, like that had all these different sounds and you could play stuff with the feet and like two different layers. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. So Reza, are you sure you can play? Oh, I can play Dreams. Yeah, yeah. So come over. And so like, I'm just hoping I'm going to stand there and watch him blow my mind. He comes over. And then he stands there and he goes, I'm just messing with you. I can't play. Heartbreaking to a seventh grader wanting to be Eddie Van Halen and wanting to play this iconic song. He had a reputation that I bought into, but he, he, he was dead in terms of his ability to play. Anyway, um, he was dead to me after that as well. Friends, this church, Jesus is saying, is like the walking dead. Not a zombie, but a church that looked alive. It looked alive. You have a name. But notice Jesus says, I, I know your works, but then there's no works. And so there's, there's a bit of mm, sarcasm, a bit of just directness, paradoxical language coming out. Uh, recall the church last week. Again, Jesus had a strong rebuke to Thyatira, but back at verse 19, Jesus said to this church, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that you're, you're growing. What you're doing now is, is better than at the beginning. Those were works and deeds. And Jesus says, I, I know your works, Sardis. You have a name, but it's only a name. You're dead. What did it mean that Sardis was dead? 
we, we think of death as death. But, but the idea, and it's all throughout the scriptures, often um, is, is the idea of poor quality. Something, Jesus may not literally be speaking of them, and he's not physically dead. They, they were physically alive, but, but there was a poor quality to their, their life. And, and in fact, it was a spiritual death for the most part. This, this church was, was, was the walking dead. It was alive, but, but it, was, it was dead. It had a metaphorical, uh, low moral quality about it that, that Jesus would simply call dead. They're dead. How does the church get a reputation like this? Well, we don't know the details of Sardis. I mean, again, there's some things that happened in its history I'll comment on in a moment uh, that seem to speak to why Jesus would give this word of rebuke. But, but what was it that, that would have them, ha- having been alive, but, but now just be dead? We don't know, but we could think about a couple things. Um, so let me list a few isms. And this, again, is partly what I um, am borrowing from Kevin DeYoung. How do churches get a reputation for being alive when on the inside they're dead? Maybe it's formalism. So we'll put ism on these words so we understand. It's not a good thing. Now, there are churches that are formal. Our church is not a formal church. I don't wear a tie or a suit. Uh, We interact and laugh, and we, we are definitely informal as churches go. But there are some churches that are formal, and there's nothing wrong with that. Formality is not a bad thing. There are people that love a formal church. I can remember uh, in uh, early years of youth pastoring, I traveled to Chicago to visit some former youth group students that were uh, attending Wheaton College, um, and and they had come from uh, one of our churches that we worked at in Orange County, very much not formal, casual beach culture, and they grew up in that, and they were hungry to taste a formal context. And so they started attending um, an Anglican church. And so I went on this Sunday and the service was over two hours. We were standing, we were sitting, we were up and down. They printed a bulletin that was like six pages and there were things to say. I mean, you know, yes, we have you do some catechism. That's like this much compared to certain churches. And and that's okay. There's Lots of freedom, and so formality is good, but when, when that formality becomes an ism, when it's just, we, this is what we do, it, this is how we've always done it, and you get dressed up, and you put on your best, and it's just kind of going through the motions, um, and so even an informal church can lend itself into formalism, if not careful. Uh, related to that would be traditionalism. Again, similar idea. It's good to have traditions, Um, Kevin DeYoung says, tradition is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And that's probably not unique to him, that phrase. Tradition is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. So traditions are good. And of course, if you know me well enough, you know I appreciate a lot the traditions that come out of the Reformation and the church from 500 years ago. Um, But if, if those traditions become traditionalism, like formalism, where you just, you have to do these things and you don't even think about them and you're just going through the motions, that's another way a church can look alive but become dead. Maybe more closer to home in our area uh, would be spiritualism. Again, I remember 
even when we were planting Soma, uh, trying to think about what is it about Sonoma County and starting a church here. There's a lot of spirituality in Sonoma County. Um, Very little of it is Holy Spirit infused, but there's a lot of spiritualism. People using spiritual language and God language and spirituality and inspiration and mystery and the soul and beauty and, and, you know, and, and, and those words can be fine if there's a foundation to it from the scriptures, but, uh, but to just be spiritual and on a journey and, and trying this and trying that, um, that, that spiritualism, that this vague sense of spirituality is not biblical Christianity. No Bible, no, no gospel, as in no word from God that God sent his son to live the life we can't live even by our own standards, not just our neighbor's standards, but the life we want to live, we fail. None of you, I don't. We don't live perfectly the way we want to live. What do we do with that? Well, the Bible talks about that. And and so spiritualism, when it's in a church, there's no mention of that, that demise of a place, but then the hope that comes through the Lord Jesus. Or another ism, could be entertainmentism, um, wanting to, you know, leave leave a gathering, a church gathering, kind of like you've been, you know, at a rock concert, right, where there's just the experience that the music moves you, and and you know, the guitar player never hits a wrong chord. I don't know what that's like, right? Or or you know, there's not, but it's just this perfect experience, and and and, and in a sense, you've been entertained. And there's nothing wrong with great music. There's nothing wrong with loud music. There's nothing wrong with guitar players who only hit the right chords. Um, and there's nothing wrong with feeling something. But again, there are churches that, man, they work really hard at all those things and that all those things would be perfect so that people have an experience. And, and that's, if that's the end goal, then that church has creeped into entertainment-ism because the goal needs to be that we encounter God whether it's because it was dark and loud and everything was cued perfectly or it was herky-jerky and, you know, a little bumpy, but, but Lord, you, you met us through your word, your, your spirit, and our spirit intersected through the, the word of God. So entertainment can be fine and, and excellence, but when it is the end goal for a church, then, then that's entertainment-ism. So, just a few ideas. The, the problem is spiritual deadness. I even think, too, churches can do all the right kinds of things, like, like feed the poor, care for those on the margins, fight for justice, things Christians should do. But if, if it's not done because of Genesis chapter 1, that God made men and women in his image, and they have dignity and value as image bearers. And because of the image of God, we seek to do these things. If that truth is not there, then then it's quite possibly a dead church to, to just do the right things without the biblical foundation is, can be a problem as well. So this is the problem of Sardis. 
But Jesus has a prescription. Verses two and three. Jesus has five rapid fire commands to this church, a prescription for a dying church. Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So let's walk through those briefly. First he says, wake up. The idea is be watchful. Now I mentioned this city, Sardis, had experienced something in its history that it seems like Jesus is using to talk to this church. So this this city had been sacked two times in its history because of not paying attention to those that were trying to uh, get in. Let me, let me tell you this, these stories. In 549 BC, Cyrus captured the, Apoc- the Acropolis by deploying a climber to work his way up a crevice on one of the perpendicular walls of the mountain fortress. Okay, so he gets in that way. Late in the third century, the city was again captured in a similar way. A Cretan by the name of Lagoras, this is from Antiochus uh, the Great, his, his people, he discovered a vulnerable point and with a band of 15 people made an ascent, got inside and opened the gates from within and allowed um, Antiochus' army to overpower. So Cyrus in 549 BC and Antiochus in 216 BC, both times the city was defeated because there weren't people watching. They were asleep. They were slumbering. And so Jesus says, wake up, church. Wake up. Be watchful. And he says, strengthen what remains. Know the grace there. Jesus says, I know your works. You've got a name, but you're dead. But, but now he says, wake up and strengthen what remains. There, there's, there's, a, there's a pulse. It's, it's hardly there. But the great physician knows it's there. And he's given a word. He's giving his word to this church. It's a prescription. Wake up and strengthen that little bit that remains. Notice what he, what he says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete, whole, reaching fulfillment in the sight of my God. So so be watchful, wake up, get get strong, get healthy. And then in verse three, the final three that all go, go together, remember then what you received and heard And what you're going to remember, keep it and repent. Come back to me. Remember what you received and heard. Every day of my life, I have to remember what God has said. Uh, We're going to sing in a moment the the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And that, that refrain that most of us can relate to, prone to wander, prone to wander, I have to remember every day that God loves me and he sent his son for me. And because I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. And because I'm in Christ, I've got the spirit indwelling me. And and therefore I'm to walk in the newness of life. I'm to put on Christ and say no to the flesh. I have to remind myself of that. I'm, I'm prone to wander. I need to remember. This church needs to remember. And then it needs to keep 
those things it remembers. You've heard me say before, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. In a moment, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to hopefully make it clear the good news that Jesus says to everyone. But even for us Christians who have responded to the gospel, who got us saved, we have to remember again and again that we are in him and God looks at us through Christ and he is our life. God loves us because of Christ and and out of the overflow of that, I need to obey and I need to walk and live this life. And there's nothing I can do to lose that. I need to remember, you need to remember and, and keep those things. And then the word repent, which we've heard to Ephesus, we've heard to Pergamum. Laodicea will be told to repent as well. We need to repent. And that's a daily thing, friends. Yes, people need to repent once and for all the first time, but then we daily have to come back to God. Notice what Jesus says. Notice what will happen if they don't hear and take this prescription. Verse three, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, implying that all these things are part of your, your waking up. If you, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is a phrase throughout the scriptures. Jesus uses it in Matthew and Luke. The apostle Paul and Peter use it to, to describe God showing up in judgment and people not being ready, Right? No one is robbed knowing it's going to happen, generally speaking. A thief comes at night. A thief comes when the people aren't ready. And and Jesus is saying, if you don't wake up, if you don't respond to my word, I'm going to come in in judgment, and you're not ready for it. It'll strike you like, like a thief does who comes in the night, and all of a sudden, something has happened. But Jesus has a promise. There's the problem, the prescription, but then amazing threefold promise. Listen to the grace, the goodness of Jesus in this promise. Let me read verses four and five. Yet you still have a few names. There's a remnant. You have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers, who's the victor, who overcomes implying who responds to my prescription will be clothed thus, clothed this way in in white garments. And I will never blot his or her name out of the book of life. I will confess his or her name before my father and before his angels. So in the ancient world, uh, in the the athletic games, think Olympics, uh, it was only open to men and the men would run in the nude. And this is one reason why the women weren't invited. Uh, But those that would win, part of what they would get would be these white clothes to put on. So so Jesus is pulling in some of that imagery to to be clothed in white. He says, there are some who, who who are clothed and haven't soiled their garments. They're not dirty. They're walking in obedience. It's not that they're perfect, but it's just this imagery of, of, of living the life God is calling them to live. And there are some there. there. There's a remnant. But to all who overcome, who repent, who take my prescription to wake up, to keep and remember, you'll get these white clothes as well. 
So that first promise, those who overcome, who respond to the prescription, will be dressed in white. And and the Bible is simply telling us this is for those who have received the grace of Christ and who then, in fact, show themselves to be in that grace. Again, it's not a call to perfection. It's simply a way of saying, have you been dressed in white? Have you repented? Are you clothed in what Jesus clothes? Um, it's, it's a picture of that. And, and this phrase, in fact, is going to come throughout Revelation. We don't have time. We're not going through the whole book. But just, again, um, note in chapter 6, chapter 7, uh, cha- and later on as well, these white garments are, are garments of righteousness. They, they are garments that represent Garments Jesus has given and garments that represent a person walking and living this right way. And, and those who overcome will, will get this victory of white garments similar to those athletic runners who get them. But I do want you to hear Revelation um, 7, verse 14. John writes, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Made their garments white in blood. (laughs) Again, revelation, imagery. The the, the teaching is it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses. The blood of Jesus that is what allows someone to be clothed in, in white. And that brings us to our catechism today. Why was it necessary, church, for Christ the Redeemer who we've been talking about to die, respond please with me. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. There it is, the blood of the lamb. Our redeemer is what gives us life and cleanses us. And the promise is, if you overcome, if you're alive, church, you're gonna be clothed in this eternal life. The second promise, Jesus will not erase our name from the book of life. So, so just listen to the words. This, this troubles a lot of people, and it ought not to. Verse five, the one who overcomes, first promise, will be clothed thus in white garments, and second promise, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So people get troubled by that. Oh, does that mean I could have my name blotted out, erased out? It doesn't say that. Jesus simply says, if you're a victor, if because of Jesus' overcoming, you now in him have overcome and are clothed, I won't erase your name. There's no implication that some have their names erased. He's just saying, I, I'm not going to erase your name. In antiquity, um, people did have their names erased from things related to uh, their, their public registry and citizenship. And if there was a crime, you could have your name erased off a list. And Jesus is saying, I don't do that. If you're mine, I've got you. If you're mine, I've got you. No one can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus said in the gospels, and I won't erase your name. That's a promise you have. 
if you're an overcomer. And then the final promise. Jesus says there at the end of verse five, I will confess his, her name before my father and before his angels. Jesus will vouch for us. Jesus will say, Father, she's mine. Father, he's mine. I, I vouch for him. Their name won't be written or erased. It's in the book and, and I will confess. I will vouch for them before my father. And that, that idea, and this is where we bring this to a close, is, is a good one to end on because this name idea is all throughout this letter, the, the idea of a name Jesus played on that word, right? This church had a name, a reputation, in verse 1 of chapter 3. They had a reputation, a name for being alive, but the reality was they were dead. In verse 4, Jesus literally said, there are a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. In verse 5, he promised that he would not remove names from the book of life. And in fact, in that same verse where we just looked at, he confesses, I will vouch for you. I will confess your names before God. Whose name do you have? Whose name do you have? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, these are all synonyms. If you've been saved, you've got Jesus' name and he's got your name and he will confess your name. You have the name of Christ. Jesus says, this one's mine. I got her. I got her. I got him. What a thought. So whose name do you have? Are you a Christian in name only? And this is a question this, this letter begs to be asked. Am I one thing on the outside, but, but not really on the inside? This was a pivotal thing for me when I was in high school. It, it struck me finally in God's work in my life after a couple of years of saying that I was a Christian and, and starting to go to church and Sunday school and youth group and, and Bible studies and all of it and hearing the word taught, the word was doing its work. And, and during that time, I thought I was a Christian, but all of a sudden, it wasn't this passage, but it was the truth of this passage. It hit me, oh, I think I've only been a Christian in name only. My life needs to reflect it. But, but that reflection is the work that God does. So have you repented and trusted and believed in the righteousness of Jesus? And I want to invite everyone listening this morning, ask the question, what is my Christian name? Is it just outward or, or has there been a work inside me? Have you confessed, admitted, God, I can't, Live the way I want to live. I can't live the way you want me to live. I, I need you. Have you confessed and believed your need and then called on Jesus to save you? Have you been to pull back, been washed in the blood of the lamb? I know a weird phrase, but we're in Revelation, so I can say it. It would be scary to, to have Jesus saying, you, you, you look one way, but it's, it's, it's just outward. It's, it's death. And, and if you don't make a change, if you don't surrender, 
I might be coming. No one knows the hour of the thief. No one knows. And again, this is to a church that might have been judged. And we got to hear that too. Like corporately, wow. What about Soma? Are we only a church in name, but, but do our deeds reflect really God's work? And, and that's worth us all praying, God, protect our church. But, but to each of us as individuals, the invitation, God so loved the world. He gave his son that whoever believes, confesses, admits, trusts in Jesus won't perish, but will have eternal life. And I, that invitation's there. And if, if the spirit is drawing you, in a moment we're gonna pray and I just invite you to, to pray a simple prayer. Just simply pray, God, I confess I need you. I admit I need you. And I don't understand it all, God, but, but I'm done trying to save myself, trying to live my life apart from you. Please change me, save me, make me yours. Give me life, give me life. And he'll do it. And if, and if you do that prayer, something like that, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to follow up with you. I'd love to answer questions. Or, or if you have questions about any of that, please come talk to me and let's follow up. Let's stand and pray and, and end with a song. Father in heaven, now we, we, we confess we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be individuals that look one way on the outside, but are something different. And God, you know, we, we all struggle at times and we don't always live the way we want to live, the way you want us to live. We're prone to wander. So help us hear that word of repentance, that invitation, and respond. And God, I do pray that if there's some today here who for the first time have responded to your invitation to receive life, to be transferred from death to life, from darkness to light, to have you live inside them. God, give them the courage to, to breathe that, that, that prayer of, of repentance and to surrender and, and change them, God, right now in this moment. Thank you that you are a God who still saves, who still gives life. And now we, as a church gathered, want to sing this prayer, wanting, asking, begging you to tune our hearts to sing your grace and to live in response to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.